0: This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the 8th episode of Season 9. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Two facts that sound like both. S- Did you know that Komodo dragons can reproduce either sexually or by virgin conception, depending on environmental conditions? In the wild, they usually reproduce sexually, but females in captivity have been known to reproduce by parthenogenesis without need for sperm. Am I saying that right? David Attenborough, you'll have to let me know, mate. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. If you can't look back at your younger self and realise that you were an idiot, you're probably still an idiot. I found that online randomly. It made me chuckle for half a second. This case was suggested by a listener who wishes to remain anonymous. We're in the West Yorkshire town of Castleford, which lies within the city of Wakefield. Here are five quick fire facts about Castleford. Number one, Castleford, or Cass as it is known to the locals, is one of a group of Wakefield towns known as the Five Towns. The others are Featherston, Nottingley, Normanton and Pontefract. Number two, after-eight mints were manufactured in Castleford from 1970 at a local Roundtree's factory, until Nestle took it over and then closed it down in 2012. The after-eights are now manufactured in Halifax. Number three, 15,000 years ago, nomadic tribes used the Air Valley, in which Castleford is situated, as an east-west crossing and a limestone ridge to move north-south. As farming and the Bronze Age developed, henges like the Ferrybridge Henge were formed into settlements. Number four, in Roman times, Castleford was called Lagentium, which is thought to mean the place of the swordsmen. Lagentium was the Roman name for the fort on whose land the town of Castleford now stands. And number five, the local rugby team Castleford Tigers was formed in 1926 was one of the 12 founding members of the Super League when the new league format was introduced in 1996. I can't speak. As of the 2021 census, the estimated population of Castleford was 45,106. This week, our villain goes by the name of Thomas Shanks, and he was born around 1951 in the densely populated area of Glasgow known as Black Hill, where he grew up. One of nine children, Thomas's childhood has been described as challenging due to the lack of opportunities in the working class neighbourhood. Black Hills lands were formerly used for farming in the 19th century, but in the early 1900s, a new major corporation housing scheme was initiated, leading to the development of over 1,300 dwellings. Amenities such as shops and public transport were lacking, so Thomas's prospects of escaping his roots and moving to a higher social class were, if you'll pardon the pun, poor. When he was just 10 years old, Thomas made a traumatising discovery. He found his dad's body after he'd suffered a fatal epileptic seizure. With so many kids to care for and her husband no longer around, Thomas's mum turned to alcohol and began physically abusing the children. It's not clear at what point she stepped in, but Thomas's aunt Patricia took on the responsibility of raising him to prevent him from being exposed to an ever-increasing toxic environment. By the time he was 15, Thomas decided to leave his family behind and escape by running away from home. With no qualifications or job prospects on the horizon, he decided to join the British Army in 1968 when he turned 17 after failing electrician and engineering apprenticeships. Thomas was not just an ordinary soldier. He was a fitness fanatic with an unwavering determination to succeed in the army. He quickly rose through the ranks to become a captain, but that wasn't enough for him. He wanted more. Roughly 18 months or so after joining the army, Thomas passed one of the most gruelling selection tests for soldiers and became the youngest person in 10 years to do so. He earned his place as a member of the Special Air Service, the SAS, whose base at the time was known as Bradbury Lines in Hereford. Despite barely being a legal adult when he passed, Thomas proved himself as an exceptional soldier. He first served in the 264 SAS Signal Squadron, a regiment whose role was to support the UK Special Forces before becoming a full member. I'm never sure if you're supposed to just say the number 264 or 264th or 264. If someone's in the army or SAS, I'm sure you can correct me on that. I should ask my dad, really. Still, Thomas struggled to escape his demons despite the amount of discipline required to pass selection. In an incident following a failed relationship fueled by alcohol, Thomas headbutted a police officer after he was arrested for drink driving. That incident led to him serving no jail time, Instead, his punishment was a large fine, and rather than dwelling on the setback, Thomas refused to let it affect his career, and continued to excel in the special forces. He served in the Omani Civil War, also known as the Dhofar Rebellion in the 70s, and the Falklands War in 1982. As well as the secret war in Oman, Thomas spent time in Yemen, a place where his grit and heroism shone amidst dangerous combat situations against communist guerrillas. After his unit was ambushed, he rescued several wounded colleagues from potentially being slaughtered, which earned him his greatest achievement, winning the military medal. One of Thomas's former comrades said of him, He was a tough, hard, nasty, stroppy jock bastard, and he got worse when on the whiskey. What stands out most about this case and its villain is that it's made all the more shocking by the fact that Thomas was someone who had once been hailed as a hero. He'd served his country with honours and was seen as an upstanding member of the community. However, his underlying demons led to something going horribly wrong along the way. Thomas would go on to make a choice that would lead him down a path of violence and destruction. The once revered army hero would soon become a merciless and cold-blooded killer. He eventually left the army to pursue a medical career, with the end goal being to become a doctor. In 1986, he enrolled at the University of Birmingham's Medical School, one of Britain's largest and oldest medical schools. Whilst there, he met a woman named Julie, with whom he started a relationship and later married in 1988. The couple lived in staff accommodation, owing to Julie's job as a lab tech there, whilst Thomas continued his studies. Their relationship wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, though. It was said to have been rather tumultuous and was always on and off. Despite having one child together, a daughter, their marriage only lasted two years. It is unclear what led to their split, or if any underlying issues contributed to their rocky relationship, but Julie has described Thomas as a caring man who loved his daughter dearly. Thomas persevered academically in spite of the issues in his personal life and passed his O-levels, followed by four hires. He remained connected with the Royal Arms Medical Corps as a reservist throughout this time and would later be recalled to serve in the Gulf War in 1991. He volunteered to serve in the conflict as part of a medical unit. During his deployment, he received inoculations consisting of multiple drugs designed to protect him from anthrax and plagues. Additionally, he was given tablets intended to safeguard against nerve gas attacks. Upon returning home after his service ended, Thomas exhibited bizarre behaviour and transformed into what some of his friends and colleagues described as a Jekyll and Hyde-like character. Some of his post-war symptoms included irritability, fatigue, memory deficits, mood swings, depression and a loss of self-control. These symptoms had not been present prior to his deployment or during his time serving overseas. They're also synonymous with what is known as Gulf War Syndrome an illness suffered by many veterans who served in the conflict. The UK's position on it, based on the overwhelming consensus of the scientific and medical communities, is that there are too many different symptoms reported for Gulf War Syndrome for it to be characterised as an actual syndrome in medical terms. Thomas Shanks would later go on to claim that he suffered from Gulf War Syndrome, but we'll come on to that later as the story progresses. When he recommenced his medical career back in the UK, he worked as an anaesthetist at Wolverhampton's New Cross Hospital, a position he held from July 1993 to December 1994. During that time, he lived at a flat in the town of Weddonsfield, located just a mile away from his work. In 1995, he started working at Pontefract General Infirmary, PGI, which is where notorious British serial killer Harold Shipman had secured a junior doctor role in the early 70s. Feel free to check out my two-part episode on Shipman if you haven't already. It was my end-of-season special for Season 7. While at PGI, Thomas continued to be embroiled in controversy and found himself in trouble with the police yet again. During his first year, he was charged with assaulting two nurses after reportedly losing his temper. That incident wasn't isolated either. He had already exhibited such behaviour before. As a result of the latest incident, he was issued with a final warning and told that any further misconduct will lead to him losing his job. Talk about an overly generous and forgiving employer. One of the assaulted nurses was an 18-year-old woman named Vicky Fletcher who had only just begun her training as a nurse at PGI around the same time Thomas started working there. In spite of that violent act, Thomas and Vicky soon hit it off and began a relationship that lasted for three years. Unfortunately, their relationship was just as toxic as his previous marriage to his ex-wife had been. While I don't know all the ins and outs of their relationship, it's clear from what I've read that it was not a healthy or stable one. They would often row in full view of others, and domestic violence was something that crept in regularly. Thomas's personal life was taking a huge toll on him, leading to an increasingly standoffish demeanour and disillusionment with the world. His time serving in the Gulf War only added to his feelings of detachment. One report claimed that he lived in Worcester until 1997, but there's some uncertainty surrounding that due to the considerable distance between Worcester and Pontefract. The 140-mile journey each way would have been one hell of a daily commute. Regardless, the person who purchased Thomas's former residence discovered a stash of old Gulf War garments smeared with anti-army slogans, such as never again, mug number one, and civilian volunteer, what a mug. That shed some light on how he viewed his military career after being recalled in 1991. After the sale of his house, Thomas found himself in a unique living situation, within the grounds of PGI. I can't comment on how common that is. They may have offered staff accommodation, as they did at the University of Birmingham's medical school, But I just picture a doctor walking around the halls 24-7 like how we used to think our caretakers did at high school. Vicky Fletcher was an outgoing and friendly young woman who radiated positivity and had a genuine passion for helping others. Her family, consisting of her mum Jeanette, dad Mick and younger brother Tim, were overjoyed when she passed her studies and became a registered nurse in September 1997. That achievement marked the culmination of years of hard work and dedication. She quickly became known among colleagues and patients as one of the most caring and compassionate nurses around. That was no doubt down to her positive attitude, tireless work ethic and infectious zest for life. On the evening of Thursday, May 7th, 1998, a fateful phone call was made that would ultimately lead to Vicky's murder. Thomas called Vicky to discuss their relationship, which had recently come to an end two weeks earlier. At the time of the call, Vicky was enjoying a night out with friends at the Castlefields pub in Castleford, one of whom happened to be David Griffin, a former PGI patient with whom she had begun a new romantic relationship. After the phone call, the group of friends finished their drinks and headed for another pub. Thomas somehow managed to track down the group and confronted them. It was clear from the way he was conducting himself that Thomas was agitated and looking for trouble, with his anger directed primarily towards David. The group of friends decided it was best to walk away from the situation, so they made their way back to the castle fields. As they walked, Thomas, whose anger by now had reached boiling point, followed closely behind them. With each member of the group left scratching their heads about what had just transpired, Vicky walked quietly beside them, not knowing that her life was in imminent danger. Vicky and her friends had just ordered a round of drinks at the pub and were settling down to reflect on the night's events when she noticed Thomas peering through one of the pub's windows. Wanting to talk some sense into her former partner, she stepped outside to speak with him. Nobody could have predicted what happened next. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. The brief exchange was watched closely by Vicky's friends, but it came to an abrupt end when Thomas suddenly pulled out an Avtomat Kalishnikova, better known as an AK-47 assault rifle, which he had acquired during his time serving in the Gulf War. That weapon was believed to be his preferred choice when he fought in the conflict and he'd illegally brought it back home with him. Once he'd opened fire at Vicky with an initial burst of bullets, the then 21-year-old nurse did her utmost to escape the onslaught by attempting to climb over some railings as she desperately tried to make her way back inside the pub. Vicky's desperate attempt proved futile when Thomas fired a second burst of shots, fatally injuring her. Reports vary on the number of shots fired, but it's believed that Thomas may have discharged as many as 20 rounds in total. Tragically, Vicky bore the brunt of his aggression and suffered at least 10 bullet wounds. If that wasn't bad enough, some of the bullets also struck the pub's wooden window frames, the impact of which caused splinters to fly out in all directions. One unlucky customer was standing at the bar waiting to be served when the shots were fired and was hit by the wooden splinters. The pub was packed that night because it was hosting a going away party that had attracted almost 100 attendees. In addition to that, there was another celebration taking place as a local lad was marking his 21st birthday by having some drinks with his mates. Quite frankly, it's a miracle that no one else was seriously injured or killed. When Thomas fled after shooting Vicky, her friends and other patrons rushed outside to attend the wounded nurse. An ambulance was called and arrived on the scene soon after. The paramedics worked frantically to stabilise Vicky as they transported her to PGI where she worked, but she'd suffered devastating injuries to her back, arms and legs. Upon arriving at PGI, medical staff, some if not most of whom will have been Vicky's colleagues, immediately began working on her in an attempt to save her life. Despite their valiant efforts, it quickly became obvious that nothing could be done. Vicky's condition was too severe and she passed away within a couple of hours of arriving. Instead of seeking refuge or hiding out somewhere, Thomas decided to head for another pub nearby. Once there, he ordered half a pint and some cigs, as if nothing had happened moments ago. He then phoned his ex-wife Julie, who was living in Birmingham with the couple's daughter at the time, and confessed to what he'd just done. The details of that call are not known, but Thomas is said to have decided to head for Birmingham to visit his family before ultimately changing his mind and heading up north to his native Scotland. The day after Vicky's murder, police launched a nationwide search for Thomas. Their first action was to close Kings Heath Infant and Nursery School as Julie worked at the infant school and their nine-year-old daughter attended the adjacent junior school. Parents were informed that an electrical fault had occurred so as not to cause panic with all pupils being sent home for safety reasons. Julie was immediately placed into protective custody along with her daughter. That measure was taken as a precautionary step to safeguard them from any potential harm or retaliation that may come their way if Thomas was indeed heading for the UK's second city. Authorities also extended their protection to some of Thomas's other Birmingham-based relatives. After making his way north of the border in his grey Peugeot 205, Thomas was tracked down later that day by police in the hills just north of Glasgow. After a phone call to his brother, who feared that he was about to take his own life, the police were tipped off as to Thomas's whereabouts by a local newspaper. It was his brother that had told them about their call. Police, who used helicopters as part of their search, eventually located Thomas outside a phone box in the town of Lennox Town, where he was swiftly arrested after surrendering. Upon searching his car, which had been parked nearby, officers found the murder weapon and several other items including an axe, a sheath knife, a baseball bat and rubber gloves. A notebook was also found in his possession, inside of which was a suspected confession note containing phrases such as A moment of rage and Ruin two lives instantly Thomas spent a night in the cells at Glasgow's Baird Street police station before being transported back to West Yorkshire the next morning, with Pontefract Police Station being chosen to hold him for questioning. He was questioned about his motives for the murder, and he explained that he first wanted to just speak with Vicky about their failed relationship. He admitted to feeling resentful that she'd moved on too quickly, in his opinion, and their stormy relationship was discussed at length. During those police interviews, Thomas also claimed that he suffered from the aforementioned Gulf War Syndrome and cited that as a possible factor affecting his mental state at the time of the murder. However, those claims contradicted records from the Ministry of Defence which indicated no contact had been made with them regarding concerns over Thomas's mental health following his involvement in the conflict. Thomas also revealed plans to enter the pub and shoot David Griffin and his son before thankfully deciding against it after realising what he'd done to Vicky. By August, Thomas was officially charged with the murder of Vicky with his trial beginning in April of the following year at Leeds Crown Court. During that initial trial, Thomas faced three charges. Murder, possession of an offensive weapon in a public place and possession of a firearm and ammunition with intent to danger life. He maintained his innocence and denied all three charges against him. Instead, he pleaded guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. After a six-week trial, the jury was unable to reach a verdict regarding the murder charge after six hours of deliberation. The prosecution carefully weighed their options and considered what the ramifications of a retrial could mean, but ultimately agreed that one was necessary. In the meantime, Thomas did not escape punishment for his other charges. He received a 12-year sentence for possession of an offensive weapon in a public place and another concurrent 9-year sentence for possessing a firearm and ammunition with intent to endanger life. His second trial began in March 2000 at Sheffield Crown Court and lasted 8 weeks. This time, the jury reached a verdict of guilty regarding Thomas Shanks' murder charge with a majority vote of 10-2. Mr. Justice Jowett sentenced Thomas to life imprisonment on April 19th, dismissing his claim of Gulf War Syndrome as nonsense during the hearing. In his closing statement, Judge Jowett condemned him for taking away an innocent life because he was unable to cope with his own unhappiness and jealousy. The judge said, It's clear to me that the unhappiness you found was very largely of your own making. You were brave and unhappy and jealous enough when you put together the gun and loaded the magazine. You knew what you were doing. Following the sentence in Vicky's mum Jeanette said this man should spend the rest of his natural life behind bars that Vicky should die for no better reason than she made a bad choice of boyfriend is so cruel and such a waste thomas made an attempt to appeal his conviction in the hope that it would be reduced to manslaughter he argued that the trial judge gave the jury incorrect directions regarding his reasoning for possessing a weapon in march 2003 thomas's appeal was rejected by the court of appeal Lord Justice Old sat with Mr Justice Grey and Mr Justice Crane and they felt that his claim wasn't valid since there was an overwhelming amount of evidence from the prosecution indicating intent to kill. Consequently, Thomas was sent back to Whitemore Prison in Cambridgeshire after being informed of their decision. More bad news came in May of that year when a General Medical Council disciplinary hearing took place with the outcome being to strike Thomas from the medical register. Committee Chairman Rani Atma said, Instead of fulfilling his duty to preserve life, Dr. Shanks deliberately used an illicitly held lethal weapon to shoot his former girlfriend in a public place and shot her again as she tried to escape. He then made off without any concern for her treatment or welfare. In 2008, a significant change in the law occurred regarding life as minimum tariffs. As a result of the amendment, Thomas was handed an 18-year minimum sentence for his crime, which he had already served 10 years of by that point. That meant that he could become eligible for parole in April 2016 and was subsequently released from prison. There are some suspicions among the public regarding his current whereabouts since his release. Some believe that he may have returned to his homeland north of the border, leaving many Scots worried about how safe they are with a convicted murderer roaming their streets. And that was the story of British murderer Thomas Shanks. Thanks again, anonymous listener, for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. If you're listening on Spotify, there's a section at the bottom of the episode where you can let me know what you thought about this case. I've got five new reviews to read out this week. Amber left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Amazing. It reads, Honestly, this podcast has been a friend to me during a pretty toxic work environment. I've now started my new role and still listening every time a new episode comes out. I have a fascination with true crime and Stuart covers them in a respectful and informative manner. Thanks for an amazing podcast. Jackman or Jackman12341 left a five-star review on Apple Podcast UK titled Brilliant Podcast. It reads, Love the podcast. As an ex-police officer, I've always been intrigued by murder cases. Love your presentation. Wish we'd do a few more older murders as I am fascinated with investigations done in the early 20th century. My only one little criticism is the music at the start of each episode, but that's nitpicking. Can I suggest Vivian Teed, a murder in Swansea in 1958, I think? Would be interesting. If the music is your only nitpick, mate, then that's fine by me. Feel free to send me an email if you fancy being a guest on the show, by the way. I really enjoy speaking to ex-Coppers. I've added your case suggestion to my spreadsheet too. Simon left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Nice to Hear a Local Lad. It reads... Came across Stuart's podcast after going down a true crime hall on Spotify. The format is great, and his dulcet Uddersfield tones make it feel like it's one of my mates telling a story to me. May I suggest the Birkby fires as a future episode? Atik was a dear friend and feel like it's a story that should be told. Keep up the good work. I've added that case to my spreadsheet for you, Simon. I actually used to live in Birkby long, long time ago. Linda UK left a five-star review on Apple Podcast Canada titled British Murders. It reads, Absolutely love listening to British Murders. So, so interesting. Well done. And Rhea Jade recommended British Murders on Facebook by saying, I couldn't get through work without this podcast. It's one of the very few I'm able to listen to without becoming annoyed at all of the extra commentary, as there is very little which I like. I wish there were more than five stars because the cases you cover are some I myself have never even heard of and the way you deliver them is so respectful and considerate to the victims and their families. Thank you Amber, Jackman, Jackman, Jack, Simon, Linda and Rhea for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on my website. Thank you, Lucy Inge, for buying me a beer via buymeacoffee.com slash Murders. The message left was, I absolutely love your podcast, Stu. It gets me through the day at work, and I am now all up to date on your latest shows. What will I do in the meantime? I love the way you tell the stories, and your sense of humour and wit is similar to that of my own. I also love the way you say show notes in your accent. (laughs) Anyway, keep up the good work and have a beer on me. Cheerio. Thank you and welcome to my latest Patreon member, Michelle Brady. Please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll get a cheeky shout-out too. And that's it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio.